listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Eleanor and talking about early permanence. Hiya, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, hi, lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you here. And we overcame our small technical hitches at the start, which is excellent. So we're raring to go. I wonder if we should start by um, talking a little bit about what early permanence is. So I don't know if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit about what it means, who might do it and so on. Yeah, of course. Um, So early permanence was a process developed by social workers having um, experienced and watched uh, the trauma of children's transitions, um, I guess, in lots of different placements and the impact that that had on attachment. It's sometimes called concurrency, or it was in 2015 when we uh, first did it. And it's also called foster to adopt. And basically what it means is that as a child is is born or relinquish, a child is relinquished, they are fostered by the same people who plan to adopt them. And so the fostering placement is maintained. And sometimes that's works out and sometimes that adoption is then taken through port and the foster carers become adopters Uh, so you're trained in both basically and then sometimes of course that doesn't work out and the children return to their birth families so it's a process to reduce the trauma that children might experience uh, through multiple placements yeah and I've seen it done lots of times and I know that one of the things that I've seen amongst LGBTQ people is sometimes people ruling themselves out saying well we'll never get a baby even if people feel very clearly that they want one it's like well we're not the kind of people who get the babies surely it's the cisgender heterosexual couples who get the babies did any of that stuff go through your mind back then? And it was said. It was said to us, a, a social worker. Helpful. We said that in our first meeting, and they said, "You know, you're likely to adopt somebody who's who's over five And uh, explained what early permanence was, but kind of hinted, well, more than hinted, really, that it wasn't for us. And I said, "Why? Why would that be?" And she said, "Well, social work." She said, "It's not us. It's the placement social workers that would discriminate against you." And so I immediately you know said well what's your internal challenge to that if there's if you're saying it's structural homophobia or institutionalized homophobia what's your what's your challenge and she said it's very difficult to challenge so that was <laughs> I bet they loved you straight away didn't they <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were great we were delighted yeah. we were thrilled <laughs> but do you know what it's so funny because we hear that so often everybody thinks the next person in the chain is the one who will discriminate so, you know, when you phone up, they're like, oh, no, I'm fine about it, but the assessing social worker might be funny about it. And then they say, no, I'm fine about it, but the assessment panel won't like it. And then they say, we're fine, but the matching people won't like it. And they say, we're fine, but the decision maker won't like it. And they say, we're fine, but nobody will like it at the school gates. And everybody's kind of so worried about you, but not owning it. They're not saying it's their prejudice. It's the next person in the chains. They're protecting you from it. And I think it's this... Um, strange sort of pseudo helpful information some of those concerns are valid but sometimes they're really overblown and you're right sometimes you then say well what are you doing about it then ah well you know nothing I I think there's a real lack of acknowledgement that homophobia is structural 
and it's easy to reduce it to an individual person. But actually, well, I would much more prefer to have a kind of liberatory conversation about how we will experience structural homophobia in this process and how do we prevent it through the way that we work together. Um, how are we ready for it rather than, oh, God, we found somebody <laughs> might not place a child with you. And I think it's in its infancy. I think that, that our understanding of the way that homophobia functions through our systems and processes and institutions is still in its infancy. They're still in kind of awkwardness. I'm much more like, let's get it out there. <laughs> it exists. Yeah, no, I understand that. And I I feel similarly, and or at least I feel a linked thing with when people are coming at things from an angle of, well, these children have already been through a lot. They're already the odd one out in their class because they've been adopted or been fostered or whatever. Therefore, let's put them with the most huge quotes, normal family we can possibly find. Actually, I feel really quite rebellious about that these days. I really want to push back hard on that and say, actually, no, because that quotes normal family has got no experience whatsoever of challenging assumption, of walking a path that's different of being different whereas we've all got that already so put the child with us and we will help that child to learn how you function when life does make you that bit different mm-hmm. and how you build your confidence your dignity your friendships your network and so on in the face of difference and I think that the sector would do well to realize that placing kids who are by definition the odd one out from their peers placing them with people who know how to do odd one out is probably a really good thing. Mm. I think there's a kind of underlying assumption, isn't there, in in the kind of normal, I'm saying put, using inverted commas, or usual or, at, let's face it, majority. Like, let's put them in the majority and they'll be safe there. I think there's a kind of underlying mythology around that being a really healthy relationship or that being somehow presented as the norm or a really most productive space uh, for children. Whereas actually, if you look at some of the challenges around patriarchy and the way and masculinity and femininity, I think actually there, there are equal challenges <laughs> in majoritized spaces that further can, can further compound children's experience. Um, so I, I guess I, you know, I, I can hear you're questioning it. But I do, I did, we always challenged back. We always challenged back. And we were lucky in our process that we had two very dear friends who were ex-IROs, so um, independent reviewing officers. And we went to them with lots of different challenges. They were from Brighton. They were both lesbians. Um, and we asked, uh, you know, what should we do when we experience? And their advice was, you know, be quiet. Be quiet and wait until matching be quiet, yeah. just be open, be open and be general and then just just wait. But I did we did challenge where we could. And we luckily in the first round had a fantastic social worker who knew lots of uh, LGBTQ plus people. So it felt like we weren't the first customer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the doors. yeah, but absolutely the kind of peer to peer wisdom is often don't challenge it get your head down or if you absolutely have to challenge something pick the one thing that you cannot live with for a moment longer and challenge that and even then challenge it gently with a smile on your face Mm. because it is so difficult and the system can close ranks sometimes and say no complaint not upheld and what's more we now think you're a difficult person 
So it is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And some of those are systemic issues. Well, we've wandered slightly off the point, I guess. So um, you managed to arrive at early permanence despite a bit of discouragement. Can you tell me about what your first early thoughts were about it and how you went forward from there? So we had a, once we'd begun the um, adoption process, we were looking for a sibling group initially and had been, there was quite a big drive in the Southwest around adopting uh, sibling groups. We were very interested in that. And also I was 39, 38, 39 at that time. And my wife is eight years older than me. So we had an awareness that actually we wanted to have a family quite quickly and we wanted to you know be able to lift them up and you know like (laughs) run around and do whatever I don't know whatever the the norm is of how you're meant to parent I don't know um and uh so I'd had lots of miscarriages uh which has had and we'd self-inseminated at home and found spent ages and ages finding a sperm donor and I've written a book on the whole process called Immaculate Conception, it's called. So (laughs) it begins with us thinking about it, and then it ends with our the uh, the experiences and um, the my daughter coming uh, to live with us, and then my son. But for us, I think there was a huge advantage in adoption initially because we had really struggled when we had tried to uh, self inseminate that my wife wouldn't have any biological relationship to the child so we had thought oh it would be great actually because neither of us would have a biological and what's biology anyway it doesn't really you know, yes. it really mean much to us to be honest so it so we were kind of happy with that and then in early permanence we I thought I would never ever be able to survive uh, a child leaving a fostered child leaving me and we had known and had lots of kind of talking heads in training of people who had people where early permanence had gone really well and then uh, situations where early permanence had for the adopter failed but for the child had returned to their to their birth family so initially the social worker said I don't think that you are both emotionally resilient to manage this but do the training and see and we we were saying, no, I think we are. I think we are. And then we did the training and then we had a complete swap. So I said, no, I do think we're emotionally resilient. (laughs) No, I think you are. I think you're ready. And then it happened really quickly. So what people say, don't know about early permanence is it just, it can happen really quickly, literally overnight. So we had a phone call. We did the training in May and we literally had a phone call in late August saying how do you do you, are you still interested in a baby and then my daughter was born 48 hours later wow as fast as that two weeks early so literally phone call on a monday brought her home on on thursday she was born on wow. monday. so yeah. you had her from absolutely tiny yeah literally an hour old and we met her birth family and spent the day with them spent the second day which is such a gift to be able to share with her now because I feel like we got to know them and we exchanged family stories and there were all sorts of echoes of music or leisure pursuits or life history or family history that were interwoven um, in those hours that we spent and we spent hours together hours and hours and hours. Um, wow and so where where was your head at that going from no children and not really I know that you'd been approved so there were children in mind I guess but but not imminently so no children at all on one day and a few days later a child a newborn how how were you 
uh, well, obviously pretending to social workers that everything was fine. Of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I said to Mars, I said to my wife, the only thing I know about newborn babies, really, other than all the rest that, you know, we'd learned all of the policy and process stuff and delegation, uh, you know, delegation of authority and all of that. But I said, the only thing I know about babies is that you can't take one home without a car seat. We need, <laughs> we need to get a car seat. So we went well, after that phone call, we rushed to mother care and, and reserved a, a car seat. And we didn't, you know, we didn't know anything. Didn't know anything. <laughs> no, we just pretended. Just said yes, we're fine. I literally went to mother care and just said to the woman, "What do we need?" <laughs> yeah, a very kind woman just filled a trolley and said, "You need this, this, this." She said, "I want ask <laughs> questions." This happens all the time, um, and just filled a trolley. But yeah, we literally had a phone call. Yeah, to. In fact, it weirdly, it was at that time when um, loads of people were defecting from the from the Tories to Labour and I rang my wife I was actually in the therapy session I rang my wife and, and said um literally literally the next day uh, she's gone into Labour and <laughs> my wife said who which one it was the most shocking wonderful amazing you know life-changing days of my of our lives it was it was unbelievable absolutely (laughs) very close to um even though we only met them twice the second day they came and spent the time in the hospital so we stayed overnight uh with my daughter and then they came and spent about three hours with her we all sat together in the same room drank tea talked and then they left and then we took her home wow and so such a massive change so quickly but it you know I can hear the joy in your voice when you talk about it I suppose one of the things that I've always wondered for people who are doing early permanence is how you manage that emotional line between the falling in love that you do when you know you are the child's parent or going to definitely become the child's parent versus the kind of um I don't want to say holding back because I think that would be wrong and I don't think foster carers do necessarily express it in that way of holding back but I suppose just that very different nature of that relationship that in your mind there is a real possibility this could be a time limited relationship and that your role is to care for that child for a while how did you did you find that line and how did you find it it was it's excruciating is the honest is the it's excruciating because I don't think you can hold back because I think the whole point of early permanence is that if you hold back, then the child feels that. So your job is to attach and teach yeah. that child how to attach. It's emotional even talking about. But, yeah, you have to. Otherwise, you're, you know, that you're, you're setting those blueprints. You don't get that time again. You know, it's yes. the, you're in the first times. You're in the first times of opening eyes and the first time of, of reaching out and touching people and, you know, having bodily contact. And, you know, all of those things, I think, really throw some questions around nature and nurture and yes. uh, what our roles are as human beings in connecting and attaching to other human beings. 
So for me, it kind of blew apart lots of those ideas or those kind of social constructs around what's family. And I, I, I think you, the answer is you can't. If you go into early permanence, then you're in it and you are their parent um, for that time and for that day. And that's how you get through it. And we've had two experiences, as I said, with my daughter, which is a fantastic experience. And she's now um, in primary school. She's wonderful. Um, and my son, where the, he returned after 14 months, which was absolutely horrifying and uh, horrific for our family but he's okay and interestingly when he returned so he returned um to his birth mother who is a very lovely woman and we still maintain contact the court said that they would like us to have contact four times a year which we have and he's doing really well and interestingly the therapy that we had through the adoption support fund um for my daughter at that time the, the therapist who was an adoptee herself, her, her view was, we don't know how he's going to react through that transition because he's had a really brilliant, healthy start. And usually yes. when children are facing that transition, they haven't had uh, a healthy, uh, stable, uh, regulated start. But actually, you've provided that for him. And we don't know whether he's going into a regulated space necessarily. But we do know that actually for 14 months, he's been well-regulated, well-supported, well-fed. So we don't know how, you know, you've set him up to thrive. You can do no more, basically, other than him living with us. Um, yes. So so your daughter came to you and you went through, you know, the planning that goes on with early permanence where they figure out if is the plan adoption or not, and then she went on to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, but your son came to you and didn't stay. So I'm aware how emotional some of this is, so please just... Mm-hmm don't go into things that are too hard to talk about but can you can you tell me a little bit more about the journey with your son and how how those months were and how that transition was to the to the point that you're comfortable to so he was born in just at the end of 2019 so most of the time most of his life was in lockdown really and he was very poorly when he was first born so he was in NICU for a for a month because he had had a fit when he was uh, a baby so they do this thing where they cool the body down and then they have to warm it back up but they basically kind of reset so he was in in hospital for quite a long time and then he uh, came home to us and um basically he he is living with his birth mother now which was not what she wanted nor what we wanted so we were actually quite unified with his birth mother but she had uh, shared the name of um, he was a, a concealed pregnancy and she had been encouraged to and um, I think more than encouraged to I think manipulated into sharing the birth father's name which she didn't want to do but as soon as she shared the birth father's name she triggered all of his legal rights and so her wish was because of her circumstance was that he would stay with us she she saw him twice and she said he's well looked after he's clean he's happy I can see that he's happy he's um and I wish for him to stay um but because she had said the name or she was coaxed into saying the name by a social by a very inexperienced social worker who didn't work in adoption he was a bank social worker from two counties over uh the local authority took her to court and made her tell the birth father 
um, and there's lots of you know politics around it and you know I've thought of nothing else really for kind of two years about the ethics of the choices that women have and their own particular circumstances and their own uh, agency to try and change and manage their own lives and the terms that they want to as women as mothers um, and in pregnancy so it, it what happened with him was we had to wait for a court process. His birth mother had signed all of the paperwork. She was really happy, but she was taken to court by the local authority and forced to tell. They said, if you don't tell his birth father, then we will trace him and tell him. And so she told him and he said, I don't believe in adoption. So if you don't want him, then I will have him. Right. And so she said, well, I can't have that. <laughs> Yes. So I will change my, I have to change my mind. So we then had, luckily, uh, during that, uh, once a child has been in your care for over a year, you can actually make a private and independent application to the court for adoption. So the only way that we could have my son stay with us, and by that point he'd been with us for 14 months, the only way that he could have stayed would be for me to take his birth mother to court and completely ruin her. And so yes. the court wanted her to say, you know, has there been sexual violence involved or have you been forced against your will? And she said, well, no, I'm not going to say that because that, that wasn't involved. No. So she yes. was, she did everything that was asked of her. Unfortunately for her, it it meant that her rights, her son's rights to a family life trumped her rights to privacy. Yes. So... We then, the only way through it was to be human, I think. And we did a, a our, our case had to be heard before um, he could be removed is the order of things. So um, we had a kind of legal battle with the local authority because they wanted to take him immediately. And um, she, his, his birth mother said, no, I don't want him to come immediately. I want to do, I don't know anything about transition. I don't know. This is like an adoption but yes. to his birth family. So she said, I, I need to know, give me books to read, give me training, give me things I would need to prepare. Um, she had two other children who didn't know anything about him because he'd been a concealed pregnancy. So uh, she had a massive uh, life change. Um, so we supported her with that and we, she came and stayed with us and her children came to stay with us and we got all of the children involved. She slept in our bed with my son, with our son and he left two years ago. Yeah. Gosh. And I mean, I can hear how compassionate you were from your head and how you were doing really the, it sounds like the only path that you could have, have done given the principles that you were saying but it it feels unimaginable I can't mm. yeah I can't really begin to imagine given what you said about how essentially you you parent like a parent until you find out that it's not going to be that way then yeah incredibly difficult I can I can understand mm. I think what's what's interesting about it is that Sometimes I think in training you're led to, and I, I think adoption training is, you know, can be fantastic. We had fantastic experiences from all of our trainers. We obviously did it one after the other. Um, you're, you're, you're kind of default when you haven't had a kind of bodily or sensory experience of something is you're kind of cast into a role 
that is, oh, the adopter behaves like this, or the somebody, I remember the local authority saying to me, well, you're just a foster carer. And me saying, well, this is how I choose to enact the role of foster carer, which <laughs> is with agency. I'm sorry, that makes you feel uncomfortable. But you're obviously not used to a foster carer who's advocating for the child. But you know, if you remove a child from one family to another overnight, your training has told me that. <laughs> Actually, he may lose speech, his attachment. There are many other ways to do it. You know, we exchanged, obviously, we exchanged perfume and soap powder. And he felt safe with his birth mother. He didn't know his birth mother. So he felt um, he felt safe with her by the end. He was waving goodbye by the end, which is the best thing. You know, it was excruci- absolutely excruciating. But in the end, it was between us once everybody had accepted that this is what was going to happen, and remember, it was no one's plan. <laughs> this is anybody's plan here, but we're going to make the best of it for him. Actually, as a human being, you know, I was in, we, his birth mother and I were in a shared position. She said, how the hell am I going to explain why I've got this 14-month-old baby going to school? And I was saying, how the hell am I going to explain <laughs> where my child has gone Yes. How, yeah. So we had lots of, you know, we sat, sat around and drank wine and, you know, she was a, a 38, 39 year old woman. She wasn't a child. You know, she was an experienced woman who'd made a decision about her life and her own circumstance. And I'm sure if she had had more privilege then and more structural power, I think she things may have been different. You know, she didn't have money for a solicitor. In the end, we, I paid for her. I used my privilege to pay for a um, barrister to look at the whole case to tell me what my rights, what our rights were and what could yes. we do. So that I guess there's the legal lens, but actually really the thing that, that moved me through it was that was humanity. How do I connect with this woman and her experiences and support her? And she supported us. I'm going to have to say I'm in awe of all of you hearing this. It it really does sound like you kept the child at the centre of everything as as much mm. as you could possibly do. But I'm in absolute awe of how you how you all were. Yeah, <laughs> you you've blown me away. So yeah, seriously, it's um to navigate that and to navigate it while caring for each other and while trying to just do the right thing. Yeah, that's um that's stunning. And so you refer to that child as your son still. Is that how that feels? And how how do you, I guess we all inherit some family, don't we, when you adopt because you inherit the foster carers and, you know, the siblings placed elsewhere and all of these family relationships for which we don't have names, but Ooh. you inherit them anyway. How do you describe your family? Who's Who's in it? What do you call each other? Uh, so I've started calling him my uh, foster son and we maintain with my daughter that that's her brother because it actually the hardest thing was watching my daughter manage um, and I think the therapy has helped we've worked with a brilliant therapist who from through the adoption support fund am I allowed to name her uh, if you yeah. think she wouldn't mind but <laughs> she's called Carla Reese Saunders and she's um a fantastic uh woman um and she her perspective was she she spoke to uh, my son's birth mother and she spoke to us and she spoke to my um speaks to my daughter too and 
she said the the best outcome here, the best that you can hope for, is that my your daughter has a wider sense of what family means. So she yes. really understands that family can reach across geography, different kind of social categories, if you like, that, that mean that she has a really strong sense of, you know, what love is. So that was, you know, in, in it, it's really hard. What has been particularly challenging is, of course, that she has contact with her uh, foster brother and his birth sisters. And I introduced a birth mother into the house who wasn't hers. Right, I see. So she was really confused about whose birth mother was whose and who belonged yes. to who for a while. She, so she was uh, five when she just, no, she was four when my son was born and he was with us for 14, 15 months. So she's still quite little. So that's taken a while. So, uh, and there's lots of questions there. Like why, why can I see his birth mother, but I can't see my birth mother? Why can yes. I meet his birth siblings, but I can't see my birth siblings? Are they my foster siblings too? Yes. So all of those questions that we're still kind of working out and um, understanding. But I do think that if having involved children in it and having involved, there was no way that we could do any of that behind closed doors. Or I just didn't want any kind of shifty, sordid, you know, <laughs> meetings in car parks. I just think this is ridiculous. You know, we sounds really ridiculously middle class but I baked cakes I said come over bring the children we've we had spaghetti you know there's there isn't any we did hand prints um of, of all of our hands because you know what else is there how what yes. I'm gonna have to have that conversation with her later and I was able to say this is unbelievably sad yeah I'm not going to sugarcoat it and pretend I don't feel sad. It, this is unbelievably sad. Uh, but there were also elements of joy because you're putting sprinkles on cakes and we get to go to the park and we get to go swimming and we see each other. We went to the pantomime, you know, we, so we make the most of a sustained connection. Yes. Uh, and she has a wider view of what family is. Yes, and I can I can see absolutely that could be something that will stand would stand all of us in good stead. Really, that understanding of how broad family can be and what that can mean. Mm. And so now you said it's two years on, and um, you've got your daughter living with you. You've got your foster son living elsewhere, and you know what has life involved for you, and how are you juggling just day to day life as we all have to juggle. Well, we've just moved house uh, literally before Christmas. Oh, oh good timing. <laughs> boxes as I, as I speak to you. So we have moved house because I feel as though we need to uh, grow again. So I think there's a period after, you know, the grief of loss means that, and there are so many memories in our house, in our previous house, it's really hard to move. So we've, we have, I've geographically moved us. So we've moved house into a lovely um, new space. And I guess the, my, my company, which is called Equitable Coaching, which I set up, supports people who are going through this process, because it's, it feels like there are, what I love about this podcast and what I love about your organization is that it it vocalizes and makes transparent some of the some of the of people some of people's lives 
like this is people's everyday life and we seem to be in lots of situations where we felt like we were the first people doing this yes we're not the first people doing it people have been doing this for ages either formally through social services or in different ways people have been you know lgbtq plus people have been having children for centuries (laughs) (laughs) in one way or another um and so I, I think it's really important that we share experiences and legacies and say, actually, this is almost like case studies. This is what happened to us. This is how we managed it. And it's entirely possible, painful, but you're, you know, you're not on your own. We're, you know, solidarity through experiences. And every single situation is different. Yes. But in, you know, heterosexual couples, lots of situations are really different. I just think this is about my when I coach people who were in processes it's sometimes I this is what I really think sometimes I think that as an LGBTQ adopter you're meant to be really grateful even to just have a child even Mm. to have benefited or to be allowed to marry (laughs) yeah thank you thank you so much uh for being let's get married for goodness sake and letting us have you know, letting us have children. And I think this, it's okay to say it's hard. It's okay to say it's really difficult because that's what parenting is. And all journeys are different. And I think through talking about it, and I one of the reasons why I coach people through it in, in equitable coaching is to make it, to utilise it as kind of diversity of family and diversity of people's lived experiences. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that burden of representation where you've been allowed to parent, you've been allowed to adopt, so you best not mess it up now. And so when you do then hit bumps, yeah, and I mean, I've felt it, but it's also borne out by research that LGBTQ people will stall seeking support for fear in part of that, <laughs> we always knew they'd cock it up, sort of mentality, which is perhaps out there or perhaps just internalized from decades of messaging that we weren't good enough or indeed beyond that that we were fundamentally dangerous to children just by our existence and of course those messages are creeping back in across the world with these allegations of groomers and all this sort of stuff that we haven't heard in a decade now and suddenly it's back and it's it goes in I think it seeps into your mind and so that seeking support thing can be really difficult so um given the experiences that you had with early permanence were so different to each other and so immensely emotionally challenging in the second case. Would you recommend it? Would you tell people to run a mile from it? <laughs> um, I think it depends on if that had, it depends on what you're in it for. If we had always imagined or in my mind, because I'd thought about a sibling group, you know, both my wife and I, are from sibling groups uh I was I was really key uh, that was in my picture that was in my kind of narrative um and my expectation if if my son had been my first experience of of early permanence I would have been absolutely crushed and I didn't realize how risky it on paper it looked really solid you know there was a relinquishment the birth mother had signed was really keen to sign the paperwork it looked really solid in 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 hindsight it relinquishments are not really solid uh in fact they're the least uh secure that, that, you know particularly if, if families aren't known to um known to social services previously which was which was in our case so i think it depends on, on whether you're why you're in it 
for us, I feel as though we had uh, some really good advice. We had some really good training. We had somebody really pushed us and challenged us to think. And we'd heard of lot. The training was really good. And it had people who sat and wept and said the same things that I'm saying now, you know, similar stories to what I'm saying. So I, I had felt that and I knew that. So we were very lucky that that was our second experience. If it happened in my first one, it would have absolutely broken me because I had already been on a journey. Everyone who's at the point of adoption has got a journey, has got a story, and it's never the first step. I think no. you've already experienced a lot before you get there. I think it is an amazing um, thing to do. And I don't know what it is that is appealing. You know, there were many people who didn't want to have babies. You know, all of the adopters around us would go, oh, God, newborn baby. Think of anything <laughs> worse. Whereas I, I had pictured, I think because I've been pregnant so many times and miscarried so many times, I could picture a baby. That was what was in my head. So but we were open. So I think mostly my advice would be to be open and, you know, feel your way in feel your way into it go and seek out experiences we talked to a lot of people I talked to four people who'd done early permanence some had worked some hadn't worked some people I'm still in contact with so I did a lot of research and I felt as though I could what was important to me in adoption was the reason why many of the other adopt the other sibling groups hadn't worked or hadn't worked for us that we didn't go forward with them was because I thought I can't I'm too angry at what has happened to you as a child to be able to spin this story into a positive one I haven't got it in me to spin that story because I'm too angry on your behalf and you don't need that as well so it was it was beneficial for me once I had met the birth family I felt like I can I, I can approach this with a clean slate I can I will be able to present an empathetic vision um and version of of this history for for my child so but that was what that was my journey so I guess my advice would be look at your journey like what's in your head what what's what what's your own family script and what's that telling you because you will once you explore that through reflection through journaling you find it so that's what was right for for us. But I still kind of have a hankering for a kind of teenage LGBTQ person who might need a space, who, you know, I, I kind of always keep a room ready. Yes. <laughs> I'm still in my mind as well, which my wife says, why are you saying this? <laughs> I'll so come and stay in that room. It sounds great. Somebody will need this room. I know, you know. Um, but uh, it depends on I I guess it depends on what what you have to mind yourself I think um, for your own expectations to do early permanence but I really think it's worth looking into and researching yeah and you know I can see that you've made such a positive you made such positive things out of something that was not anybody's plan as you said and Mm you know, that's a hell of a thing to have achieved, to be talking about positives out of a story that nobody wanted it to go that way, nobody planned for it to go that way, everyone tried to avoid it going that way and it still did. Mm. And that you've managed to pull positives from that, I think, speaks volumes. Mm, thank you. Yeah. It was massive. It was, it was a massive, um, a massive feat. Mm. Yes, I, I can imagine so. 
Do you think that you would consider having another child in the household? Do you think you might either foster in the way that you're describing of a teenager or something, um, or a very, very tired chief executive of an adoption and fostering charity who likes home-baked cakes? So, you know, say I'm available. Um, but um, do you think you might either consider a fostering or adoption again, or is it just not the right time to think about it? Um... I think, you know, you pointed out that I still call uh, my son my son, (laughs) my foster son. And I think I kind of feel like I have, you know, he he is with us in, you know, in some way. I don't know, like aunties or, you know, grandparents or I don't know. I think we would have to heal. You know, I'm a real believer in kind of processing grief and processing loss and I think what's interesting, what has been interesting for us is that my my daughter was, at, you know, was at the point where she was kind of, you know, uh, tired of him. <laughs> you know, so she, I could have had an image that she would be kind of breaking down and going, oh, no, he's gone. But she was like, oh, fantastic. I've got my mum's back. Can we, can we go to the zoo? You know, what about me? Because you know, she's five. And that it's wonderfully was... self-absorbed, aren't they? <laughs> like more, there's more time for me. Um, so, and that was really hard. That was really kind of when we were both weeping and going, "Oh no!" So, I think for her, there's something about adoption um, that and and fostering that is really uncertain and uncontrollable, and particularly when you're at the end of a service and you're at the end of a service that is underfunded exhausted open to rapid policy change at the last minute uh, wants a shortcut wants things off their desk you are not the center of your family what I've learned is that your family even when it's your case are not at the center of this nor is the child you know we made our son the cent and our children the center of it um, by using law because I had some money to to kind of challenge the legal um, perspective so I would think really carefully about what I let into my home again not in terms of of children or birth families but in terms of the service because that service does not prioritize fosters or adopters it it, it can't because it's it's at the moment it is so overstretched and tired and there's demand to cut huge corners and I think when that affects your life um, I had a naive idea that people would protect us from that somehow having been through the experiences it it won't the system kind of will look after itself and so if any other child came into the house it would I would have to think about my us first yes Um, because I had no idea that it could be so brutal and that you it it you know that the law can ride can the interpretation of the law can ride roughshod over people's rights over the right you know what's healthy for the child uh so yeah it would it would depend on and I can't see that sadly I can't see that get sounds really cynical doesn't it but I can't see that getting any better so I think you know you have to protect your family first um is where I'm at because now I'm you know of course all of that is finished but the emotional trauma of that happening 
is enormous. You know, it's, it doesn't go away. It takes a long time to process. We're still in therapy, um, supporting. And of course, it doesn't come out, does it, with, you know, those kind of traumas don't come out by somebody saying, I really feel like I'm missing my brother. <laughs> of course, they do. Yes. No, no. <laughs> sideways in not sleeping, not eating, yeah. you know, lots of other different control issues around having absolutely no control. So, yeah, the, the, the I think everything leaves. Uh, the, the, people don't talk about that, do they? They don't talk about the other children in the household and the impact of adoption on them very much it's mainly about the child who's been who's been adopted so yeah that's where we are at the moment but we you know we're two years out of it and we're tired <laughs> yes you just moved house you can't packing to do we're really tired <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes yeah, so you have a lot of unpacking to do I guess have you got boxes that you transferred as boxes that they never got unpacked in the old house no, we were in the old house for 20 years. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, a long time. We bought that house after we'd been together for about three weeks. Really? Um, yeah. We got together in a, um, in a, in a haze, really. Um, <laughs> my wife's friend, our friend was my previous girlfriend. So it was a cloak of shame, which I stand, still stand by. There was a three week gap in between. Um, sure. And, uh we, so we bought the house um in 2002 and said we need to sell it be able to sell it if this all you know goes to hell we need to sell it as quickly as we've bought it but we've 20 years later we've um wow we've just sold it and then we've moved into a, a bigger one so so no, you we, are literally those lesbians who moved in on a second date you are actually those people literally those <laughs> I've heard about you people. I am the actual absolute joke, yeah. Too, you tired, all to move, too tired to move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really kind of you to tell such a complicated and difficult story and, you know, and the inspiration really of you having made the best of something that was so challenging. So thank you. You're welcome. I'd like to thank my guest today, Eleanor. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.